Welcome to Star Drifter, a science fiction patio book series written and read by Lost and Bronx. Book One, Motherlode. Today's installment, Chapter Three, Incoming. Hello, this is Lost in Bronx, also known as David Collins Rivera. I'm the author, producer, and reader of this story, and I hope you enjoy it. Motherlode is a three-part novella and is actually the first story in a new science fiction patio and ebook series, which I'm calling Star Drifter. Now, I'm recording all this in advance, so I don't have any feedback yet on the audio version, but I have gotten comments from a few folks on the ebook already, and they've said some very kind things, which is gratifying to say the least. The ebook is available as a free plain text download on my site, cavalcadeaudio.com, while a Kindle version is available on amazon.com for a buck ninety-nine US. Such a deal. If you'd prefer a different format, just let me know and I'll hook you up. So, this is it. The final installment of the story. Frankly, I'm happy for it, because I'm eager to start other projects. By the time you hear this, I ought to be hip-deep into the production of the Eddie K. 2012 Christmas Quickie, which is my minor contribution to the holiday spirit. Actually, it may well be out by the time you're hearing this. Motherlode has just been killing me, I swear. Next time I decide to build a new website, publish an ebook, and produce and release an audiobook all at the same time, somebody just hold me down and, I don't know, make me take my meds or something, all right? I don't know how I got through the last few months. But I did, and this is the result, good or bad. So without further ado, I present to you Chapter 3 of Motherlode. Last time on Motherlode, we board it and take possession. They'll intercept that free trader, Ponty. Three shape charges, two assault rifles. Sally and I did a hasty EVA to rip off the housing around the feed lines to the plasma exhaust. We're going to take this thing down. Bairn says that's an automated probe. They have the AI in charge of this thing. Where the hell are the people? I found a sealed hood. My last charge went there. We could cut through a hatch pretty quickly. Sally, I'm in. You ready? The ship's logo was on the wall. It says Dafka. It's currently owned by an investment consortium in the corporate territories. Scarcher Nova Ceram Packs. Fully charged yet. Can't you just cut a hole in the side of the ship and bring them out that way? We're set up for it already. Guys, you might want to hear this. It's the AI. Zero seven B installed warhead mother load mark seven tactical nuclear defensive device. Where's it coming from again? I don't know. I don't know. Nothing on scans yet. Wait. Oh no. It's Ponty. What? Get them on the horn. Tell them to abort. It's offline. Remember? Hook it back up. How? By this point, we were back in the companionway, floating as fast as we could pull ourselves along. For crying out loud! Tertiary power channel 14. Stand by, off, on, full, go, zero delay. Hold it down two seconds, then commit. What? Wait, where's that? Oh, I know where that is. No! No! Dennis, 
Forget about calling Ponty. How much time till it hits? Looks like... Oh, man, just over 13 minutes. Get out of there, you two. On our way. No, wait. We still need the batteries. Sally looked at me through her helmet with wide eyes. There's no time, Ejak. We have to go. I didn't answer, but instead tripped the shape charge with my suit comp. There was a hard shudder in the bulkhead under my gloved hand, but that was all. We can only go with the batteries. Come on. Engineering looked different now. Large and small particles of hull material, gaseous fuel, fire-suppressant foam, instantly freeze-dried in the vac conditions, and various machine parts floated in the wide compartment like it was filled with murky water. A wickedly jagged but prettily saw-edged hole just about three meters across gaped menacingly inward. Stars and Dame Minnie's bow were plainly visible beyond. Sally, Ejok, can you hear me? Are you all right? Shut up, Bairn. Uh, Ejok, one, two, uh, six of these batteries are garbage now. That one's leaking something yellow that's probably super toxic, so watch the vapor. We can't do a decent decon out here. She said all this as we unhooked the two that were best sheltered from the blast by the now totally wrecked jump engine. I turn it this way? Okay, I can do them both now. Get back to the boat, Sal, and run us a power jump down to the supply bay and get it open. Move it. I can push these over there myself. And watch out for the loose stuff. You watch out. And then she was gone. Ten minutes, people. This is crazy, Ejok. We can still clear off in time with docking thrusters. And die slowly when the power finally fades? Ponty's coming. She can help us out. Ponty's trying to kill us, or she doesn't care if we die. Either way, she's poison. Now shut up and let me do this. It wasn't hard to disconnect them. They were as sweet and sensibly designed as Sally had observed, and every bit as massive as they looked. I heaved hard with a grunting weightlifter's shout that had everybody screaming my name and set the first of them into slow motion. It bumped into a few pieces of floating junk but didn't change direction or slow down. I jumped off so as to pace it and heaved again off a spar to do a course correction. It was a sublime moment and the battery snailed out through the new hole like it was made to do it. I see it on monitors. Sally, get that hatch open. It's opening now. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to snag it with a spanner. Negative. Open the hatch and clear out of the way. I can catch it. Oh, Bairn. The thought of him doing something important without screwing it up seemed like a wild fantasy, but I went back for the other battery anyway. Slower, you Amos. Bring it up, Bairn. Up, up. Come on, Captain Crunch. Axial spin. Now, yaw, yaw. Sally and Guinness suddenly screamed in a pitch of fear, followed by a second of silence that made my heart stop. Well, I'll be a... You did it, Baron. You really did it. Not a scratch on the thing. Hold on. It's bounding up a little, but... <sighs> okay, snagged it. And, uh, I got a tie down on it. I was pushing the second battery up at this point, but it started cartwheeling immediately. I swore loudly and tried to steady it, but I had no leverage, and I started spinning myself. Five minutes. I took a precious moment to fume, looking at the huge battery spinning slowly as it knocked small bits of flotsam around like a clumsy whale. I can't get the other one over in time. I'm coming out the hole myself and jumping over. Don't move, Bairn. Take the scooty, Jack. There's no time. Use your spanner if my aim is off. 
I pulled myself carefully through the maw of the hole. I tapped off the floods and on the helmet light amp and spied Sally holding onto the battery inside the supply bay, only about ten meters away. She had it secured with cargo straps and held the spanner in one hand. I jumped and started to spin like the battery I'd just left behind. Oh, for the love of... Hold on, he jogged. Hold on, stop flailing. I didn't realize I was flailing because I was too busy panicking. Get me! Sally, catch me! Already... Ah, done. I felt something pull at my boot, and in a moment, my head was at Sally's floating feet. I was hyperventilating, but I moved carefully to orient myself to her. I took a death grip on a nearby handhold. Take this. She looked me decisively in the eye through our faceplates, pushing a jumper connect into my gloved hand. It was the right thing to say and do, because it gave me something simple but vital to focus on, while she turned her attention to the input panel on the battery. Close the bay, Baron. Oh, man, this thing is sweet. Hand me that connect now, Ejack. Good. Good, it's in. Okay, here goes. Two minutes. And main breaker is on. We saw no difference down in the bay because we'd pulled so many system controls, but we'd put a main drive shunt in place before we'd left, which was all that mattered. Now, Baron, full on! We were moving even before the bay doors were fully closed. There was a big bleed-over from inertials, a couple of Gs, and we both went flying. If I hadn't had a helmet on, I'd have fractured my skull against the bulkhead, and as it was, I was seeing so many stars, I thought I was still outside. Sally hit off the corner of the battery, then slammed into a storage rack so hard she yelped like a puppy. Waiting for a nuke to blow has a weird way of simultaneously slowing time to a crawl and accelerating it to light speed. A hideous, subjective-objective relativistic melding with abject terror as an added spice. Then there was a sudden shudder that I recognized immediately as the bow tubes launched. What the? Oh, no, it wasn't me. I didn't fire. I swear it. I know, I know. The incoming has crossed a threshold I listed as one of my auto-firing criteria. Our rounds will be tracking back along the incoming heat trail. They're headed out to Ponte. What's the ETA on those? Looks like 11, no, 12 minutes. Ours are a little faster, but it doesn't matter now. Just 40 seconds until theirs hits. Still on target for Dafka. Oh, man. Bairn, will we make it? Drives at full acceleration. It'll be close. I just want to say that it has been a pleasure and a privilege to be your commanding officer, and that if we don't make it out of here... Bairn, not now, not now! 15 seconds. 10. 5. Impact. There was a stiff jarring, and the acceleration dropped off immediately. I waited for something nastier to happen. We all did, because in an atmosphere, we'd have been blown apart like a porcelain jar in a gale. The efficacy of nuclear weapons in a vacuum is of a magnitude smaller, though, and more dependent upon accuracy. Engines are off. I'm getting an EMP warning. Oh, yeah. No engine casings. But the rest of the boat is hardened enough. Computer should run a hard reset on the system automatically. Should just be a few minutes. Sensors should do the same, but right now we're blind up here. If Ponty's still moving along the same trajectory at the same speed, I think we have an ETA of eight minutes with our missiles. Ponty will be on the move. Get whatever sensors we have up and running again. Sally and I'll get weapon systems back online. Sally's lack of comment made me turn and look. 
She floated at a weird angle in front of the rack she'd hit and was unmoving except for a slow drift. I swore and turned her over. Her eyes were rolled back and she looked gray. I keyed the air cycle for the supply bay, but that was going to take minutes. Sally's hurt. I'll need help down here as soon as we're pressurized. How is she? I can't tell yet. Unconscious? Maybe a seizure? She hit hard at takeoff. Have the shock kit handy, okay? Taking proper hold during movement is a basic responsibility of each crew member. Um, who's primary medic? Sally is... Sally! I'm secondary med and Guinness is tertiary. Guinness, we still have four minutes till you can get in here. Reset what you can with those sensors and get those actives up too. Bairn, cover sensors and comm when he leaves and keep your weather eye open for heat trails. A few long moments snailed by in silence and terror. I... I have actives. You're right. Ponty's accelerating and... No. Those dirty backstabbers. I count two, check that three new inbound heat trails. And they have a lock on us already. What? Already? That's impossible. Get down here again. 30 seconds until the pressure cycle is done. And I need to reconnect the weapon power nodules as soon as I can get inside. Half a minute and it crawled. Sally's breathing seemed labored. Mine certainly was. Gen, headset on and wired for sound, was at the window in the airlock door, looking almost as pained as Sally did, while Bayern was sounding way too take charge for comfort. The moment the pressure indicator showed green, I tore open the door and pushed past Guinness. I popped my face shield as I swam through the main companionway to the correct maintenance hatch, then popped that too and sent the plastic covering sailing like a discus. I heard Bairn swear through the open hatchway to the bridge, so my aim was good anyway. I only hoped that it would last. How's Sally? Doesn't look good, Ejok. I've given her something for the shock, but I think she has a concussion. There might be other problems, but I can't tell while she's in the suit. I need help here. We all need help here. Do what you can. Where are those incomings right now, Bairn? Uh, ETA looks like six minutes. They're moving fast and still gaining. Can you shoot them down? I'm going to try, but our ordinance isn't designed for anti-missile work. And these incomings may be nukes too, in which case they'll blow when they're within 100 meters of us. But if their onboard nav gear is any good at all, they might hit spot on and won't even need the warheads. What's Ponty doing? Looks like they've changed course a little and are outward bound under full drive power. Their flight path... Uh... What is it? Don't waste time! Well, if I didn't know better, I'd say Ponty was getting ready for Star Jump. That doesn't make sense, though. They're still inside the gravity shadow. There's a good chance of a missed jump if they go now. I took away their choice in the matter. Ah, this whole thing's a setup. What do you mean? Never mind. How are engines? Looks like... Yes, online. Do we run for it? Negative. We can't outrun them now. Just watch the sensors and power up engines. Be ready for evasives on my call. I'd been talking as I brought up my tactical boards and fire control interface and began running them through a quickie diag. Everything looked good enough to offer hope, which I normally eschewed, but this seemed like a nice exception. The gloves were in the way, so I spent a full minute disconnecting them and sending them off. By this point, we had so much unsecured stuff floating around, I figured it didn't matter. I was acting and reacting, but I had no illusions. Not anymore. I tweaked one of our two outgoings towards a point I thought Ponty might want to reach before risking her jump. 
The other one, I throttled back for 10 seconds, then brought up its full propellant burn again, along with a tiny course correction. That put the first missile in front of Ponte's projected path, and the other one right on target, but delayed just enough to give them time to make a rash decision. If the risk of a misjump was higher further in, then that's exactly where I wanted them to try it. Ejok, I'm reading a graviton discharge from Ponte. They're jumping. I just don't get it. It's way too early. It's their only chance. What are the odds of a misjump from there? I have no idea, but okay. Here's the spike. Good jump or bad, they're gone. So that was that. I spared the vindictive space of a heartbeat, hoping Ponty and her crew had been torn apart at the molecular level and scattered across years of time and parsecs of space, as was theorized to happen in catastrophic misjumps. Then I had the incomings on a hard lock and was gratified to see a close formation, even after all that distance. I rotated Dame Minnie's forward missile packs in both tubes and fired simultaneously. I held my breath for a count of eleven, then hit the auto-destruct for them. They disappeared as dual contacts from my screens and instead became widening clouds. Oh, Ejok, what'd you do? I'm gunning it! He had seen our only defensive weapons just drop off sensors and was about to jump off the branch like a scared bird. Wait for it! I said, wait! And then, two of the three incomings on the tack board winked out when they hit my impromptu debris field. The third one, though, slipped through it like a ghostly thing. Now, now, now! I was slammed against my harness hard, inertials bleeding shamelessly, then felt my stomach get tossed to the side, up, down, and over. Bairn! Hold on! Then my spleen and eyeballs alike tried to jump out of my body, and I could only hope that Guinness had secured Sally well. A serene, agonizing silence followed for several seconds, wherein I fully expected to become part of a rapidly expanding ball of energy. But I finally let out a sigh when it stretched on. The tack board showed a small mass of debris on the missile's former track, moving out obliquely in a messy wave of scrap. What happened to it? Bairn? I'm not sure. I, I was dodging, but it kept compensating, so I pulled a tighter angle. It altered course again on a tight arc and then just fell apart. <laughs> Gee, Strain. The missile couldn't handle its own course correction. Fantastic job, Bairn! Well, thank you. All clear? If so, get down here, Ejok. Sally's not looking good, and Med's not my bailiwick. It wasn't mine either, but I'd had some training. I couldn't do much for her while I was still in the suit, so I got out of it, telling Guinness to do the same for her before I got back down there. She was in her skivvies by the time I did arrive, and pale, though her breathing was more regular. She moaned, but wasn't quite conscious. Watch the right arm. She cried out when I took the suit off. I think it might be broken. The funny angle it had spoke of volumes of pain. It's dislocated. I checked for brakes anyway. Finding none, I told Guinness to hold her tight. I grabbed her arm and pulled, and she screamed and seemed almost to come too, spitting my name and cursing soundly. She was out cold for sure after that, though, and Gen and I moved her back to her cabin. I gave her a shot for pain, mixed with a sedative, and we left her bungeed to her bunk, fully asleep at last. I'm not getting used to my new solitude I've still got a photo in my 
wallet of you all. There was a lot of work to do before any of us could take the time to stand vigil. I drafted Guinness because I needed an extra pair of hands in a couple of places. We worked in silence for the most part, except when I gave him instructions on what to hold or press or lift. My intention was that with just one of these batteries aboard, we'd return artificial gravity to only half normal. But that was still a big draw, and I wanted all our basics online first before pressing for convenience. Plumbing and general power access would come next. And Gen was still quiet. Are you mad at me? I said we shouldn't do this from the start, and now Sally's been seriously injured. Don't be silly, Ejok. Of course I'm mad at you. You ought to know I'd never intentionally hurt her. We needed that battery again. What choice did we have? Besides, you, of all people, have no right to complain about putting others at risk. I hadn't meant to say it then. I'd wanted to wait until we'd gotten back to Diegman, and then only to the proper authorities. He stopped holding and stared at me for a long moment. Do you want to qualify that? I didn't, but now I had to. Ponty knew Dafka's location well enough to target it. The missile had a lock from the start. At their distance, with Dafka's stealth suite and as powered down as we were, they'd have needed military-grade scanning equipment to detect either of us. But a quality analysis of their sensor wash showed that those guys were just using off-the-shelf stuff, and no matter what kind of enhancement algorithms they might have had running too, it would not have been enough for combat purposes on the fly like that. Not unless they knew exactly where to look. They could have been tracking our personnel comm signals, and we'd contacted them directly several times as it was. Tight beams only which are easy enough to draw a bead on, but we changed directions after that. Ponty didn't have a basis for triangulating our signal, and they didn't have our comm frequency anyway. Or did they? There are a dozen ways to figure out a spacecraft's location that I can think of just off the top of my head. You're talking nonsense. Probably, in which case you have my apologies. But if I'm not, Guinness, then I only have one question. Why did your partners on Ponty double-cross you? Dead. Silence. Easy-going Guinness suddenly wasn't easy or going. He gathered there like a storm cloud, dark, patient, quiet, but for a distant rumble. I don't know what you're talking about, Ejok. I think you do. Ponty may not have had a great sensor suite aboard, but Dafka sure did, along with a bona fide AI to analyze the readings. Even powered down like we were, it should have picked us up on its passive systems immediately. I'm guessing that it did, but that it had been told not to bother us unless we bothered it. We bothered it, so it tried to fire on us. But you run the sensors. You run comp systems. If I hadn't spotted that proximity alert by accident, Dafka would have slipped in completely unnoticed and could have met up with Ponty without the rest of us ever knowing about it until we got back to Diegman. I did notice it, though, and you knew I would have followed it up if you tried to play it off as a ghost contact or a glitch, so you had no choice but to treat it as seriously as I did. I took a breath to gauge his reaction, but he still had none, so I went on. If it all went well for you, it would have been a big knock against the fledgling Diegman defense program, and we would have been in the center of the crap storm. 
Well, some of us anyway. My thinking is that you have another identity ready to step into back there, but whatever. The point is, there was a fake pirate attack planned. Dafkod jumps in on its own, and Ponty purposely meets up with it. They send out fake distress calls to Diegman. Then they shift their cargo load to Dafka, and the crew messes up the interior of their old ship to look like a struggle occurred. Maybe they concoct some internal data records to make it look like the pirates got inside, or perhaps the crew donates a couple of cc's of blood each and spatters it around for good effect, stuff like that. However, it gets rigged. Ponty is abandoned, and the crew transfers to Dafka and jumps away easy as you please. I'm willing to bet that most, if not all, the attacks have been scammed since the beginning. A campaign like this must have been planned a long time in advance, so you guys probably had to think of something fast once it was made public knowledge that a Betchel was being outfitted for anti-piracy. Maybe Dafka couldn't be reprogrammed in time, or maybe you were worried about it getting damaged in a real engagement with Dame Minnie. Why bother with violence at all, though, if you could pull your scam again and discredit the defense program at the same time? I figure that's where you came in. Your job was to make sure this all went off without any interference from us. Why would anyone go to the great expense and trouble of staging a fake attack? Business, of course. A campaign like this just might be part of some company's long-term strategy. I haven't had time to research the corporation that owns, or rather owned, Dafka, but I'll bet they're in a sweet position to profit from the fear produced by all the so-called pirate attacks here. Maybe they sell private security services, maybe they sell warships, insurance, who knows? Any way you cut it, Scared, desperate people are willing to spend freely for peace of mind. And Diegman's economy is starting to dive because of this climate of fear. That's all wild conjecture, Ejok. He still hadn't moved. He barely blinked, in fact, since I'd started. I've got to admit, his deadpan was starting to get creepy. You can't prove any of this. That wasn't exactly true. He didn't need to know it, but really, I do stupid things when I'm pissed off. No? Well, weapons weren't the only toys I had in my duffel gun. I jacked a bunch of inline microcorders into the comm system all over the boat, back when we were still doing the outbound shakedown. See, I thought they'd be useful for us poor working slobs in case the owners tried to withhold bonuses or other compensations by claiming that we hadn't been doing our jobs or something. It's happened to me before, actually. Well, when Diegman Admin downloads Dame Minnie's records... The recorders will dump their data, too, as a single backup file. Any discrepancies between the computer logs entered by the crew and that backup data will get flagged and displayed first thing. And since Portside SOP is to download a vessel's mission data during its final approach, Diegman Security Corps would likely be waiting for us with warrants when we docked. He seemed to be thinking about it very, very carefully. Then slowly and deliberately, as he floated silently in the companionway, he took out a short, serrated knife from a sleeve pocket of his jumper. It might have been small, but it looked sharp and cruel to me, as did Guinness now. And where are all those micro-quarters? He hadn't changed expression or yet made any approach. Even so, I smiled. Not because I was feeling cocky or thought the situation was especially funny, but because I was relieved. Until that moment, I really had no idea if I was right. 
I'd felt guilty for thinking ill of him, half believing that it was jealousy over his relationship with Sally. But now I felt vindicated. Put the knife down, Guinness. Dame Minnie still needs a crew, and we're still a long way from home. I'm rated for more skills than my CV would have you believe. Running this boat by myself would not be impossible, merely difficult. And truthfully, killing you wouldn't even be that. But if we can come to an agreement, we can avoid unpleasantries. You're very resourceful, Ejok. I have to say I'm quite impressed. Your skills and ingenuity, to say nothing of your leadership capabilities, could fetch an impressive pay rate in the right circles. And I can make those introductions. If I keep my mouth shut, you mean. I'm not a pirate, Guinness. Is it, Guinness, by the way? No, of course not. And this isn't piracy. That's rarely profitable and certainly inelegant. For now, let's just say we're contractors who specialize in situations requiring finesse. And you think of nuclear-tipped missiles as tools of finesse? <sighs> For the record, Ponty was piloted by its original crew, not colleagues of mine. They were in trouble with their finance company and amenable to a deal. Recruiting them like we did was a service to Diegman, really. Ponty had done its share of real piracy in the past to make ends meet, and I believe they came to Riltool for that purpose from the onset. But civilians, corrupt ones especially, are unreliable. I signaled them to sit tight and wait for my all-clear, but they must have panicked. My employers don't care for loose ends, so if Ponty somehow survived that jump, it will be tracked and confronted in due course. I shook my head and actually started working on the water pipe again. And you really think I'm strack enough to be a mercenary soldier? Part of the rank and file? No, but that'd be a horrid waste of your talents anyway. You positively excel at the unexpected, and that's a rare gift. Now, I won't lie to you about this, anyway. My mission is a flop precisely because of you. But there is still a little hope for some personal profit. We get a recruitment bonus for bringing good people into the company. It's a really progressive outfit. We have above-standard pay rates, full life and medical coverage, profit-sharing, and a lot of little incentives like this recruitment thing. People like you and me, we'd be on our own most of the time. Good teams even form their own tactical approaches to the company's strategies. It can be a nice life, Ejok. The knife he still held at the ready had another thing to add about the advantages of signing on. You'll be wanting the microquarters, of course. Yes, that's certainly a condition. But I can even get you a quick ride off Diegman once we get back. A company transport is in dock now, not that anyone knows it as such, and it'll be leaving soon after Dame Minnie docks, whenever that turns out to be. Top accommodations with a cabin of your own, associate status which entitles you to a pay differential for the trip out, regardless of whether or not you get hired, and believe it or not, some halfway decent ship food. I have to admit, that sounded kind of sweet. A good gig that tapped my skills and respected my abilities? One that maybe paid well? One that would get me out of real tool system for good and with some pocket change yet? What about the others? 
Even assuming we actually get our bonuses from this cruise, money on Diegman doesn't last long. He sighed again and shook his head. Well, Baron's a fine pilot, but I mean, really, the man could exasperate a corpse without trying, or even knowing it. This is a company of people, and he's just about the worst people person I've ever met. Anyway, he has ties here, an active career and such. Okay, then, what about Sally? She's really good, and she'll need the work. I was going to approach her about it when we were on our way back to Diegman. Honestly, I've grown quite fond of her these last couple of weeks, and I have nothing but respect for her skills and courage, but now that she's been hurt, well, I don't know. The company won't hire somebody who's wounded. It's a policy. I mean, as employees, we're always on the go. No company can afford to bring someone in who can't pull a profit right away. I mean, they just wouldn't go for it. It's only a dislocation, I think. Well, maybe a slight concussion, too. She can be up and running in no time. Ejock, if it were my call, there'd be no question. But I don't do the hiring, and um, there's this secrecy policy in place. If I bring someone in who can't possibly be hired, well... He let the finality of that statement hang, and I let it go, too. That's not the only reason, is it? What do you mean? Come on, you're a good-looking guy, half her age. You don't bunk alone when you're back in the company fleet, am I right? At least he had the decency to blush. A little. Ejok, this job isn't always easy. I mean, you have to see that. Yes, there is someone, but a domestic partnership among professionals is always a challenge. So Sally has to be left behind on a rock simply because she'd make you feel uncomfortable? Are you really that much of a heel? Please, I intend to put some money into her account so she can book passage elsewhere. It's not like she'd be a vagrant or something. That's not what I'm talking about, and you know it. I know you're in love with her yourself, Ejok, but you can't let that cloud your objectivity. You could have a stellar career with us, but the plain fact is that everything has a cost. Honestly, I don't understand the implied point, and this shouldn't be a hard decision for you. A professional does what needs to be done, but it takes more than skill and ingenuity to be one. You have to think like one. I kept working for a long time, running through the plumbing resets and doing diags, and I didn't even stop working when I finally answered. No, I don't. In fact, I won't. Kill me, and you'll never find all the recorders no matter how hard you try. That's a guarantee. And you'll have to kill Sally and Bairn, too, because there's no way you could hide my death. You say you can fly the boat alone? Well, super for you, but you can't stop an inquiry without me. Maybe you're thinking that you'll figure out a way to get at the boat's core records, but you won't. Better minds, an army of them over the course of generations, have dedicated themselves to the security of core records on space vessels. You can destroy the data block, maybe, but you'll never breach it. And destroying it in such a way as to convince everyone back on Diegman that Dane Minnie got hit in the fight would be a long shot at best. Either way, you'd miss your flight out, and I'm guessing there wouldn't be another. He pursed his lips in a sour face and thought for a bit. So, what do you want? Sally and Bairn get ten times their Dame Mini sign-on pays deposited into their accounts before we dock. Be serious, I don't have that kind of money. Then make it happen. 
you steal it or get an advance from these great employers of yours or sell your soul, whatever it takes. They deserve it, and you're going to give it to them. Bairn's a numbskull, but he came through for us when the heat was on. And Sally is good people. The best, in fact. Even if she has rotten taste in men. And what do you want? Blackmail is a bad way to apply for a job. You make it sound like an exclusive club, but if they'd hire you, they're just a bunch of pirates after all. You do this for Sally and Bairn, and you get the recorders. Nothing more out of you, nothing less out of me. His frown held for long moments, but at last he slid his little knife back into his sleeve. This will nearly wipe me out, Ejok. No mission bonus, no recruitment bonus, and most of my savings until I can put in an expense account. And even then, I don't know if they'll honor it, considering the circumstances. Plus, we're sure to lose the contract with the investment consortium who hired us. It puts me in a tight corner. You're not being fair. I had held it together well up to that point, if I say so myself. But his play for sympathy was the last straw. Don't you dare try to play the morality card here. I don't offend easily, but that would really push it. You've been playing everybody for a patsy from the very beginning, from those mining jamokes on Diegman all the way up to the woman you've been sleeping with and whose life your actions have imperiled. You have no high ground here to argue from. Just drop it so we can get some bleeding work done, all right? This waterline needs adjusting, so hold your end up. Higher. Higher, I said. Use both hands. You can manage that much, can't you? He was looking very unhappy, even sulky. But he'd put away his weapon, held the line like I told him to, and overall seemed a lot less menacing. I picked up a medium spanner and tested its size on the waterline. It was too big for that job, but not the one I really needed it for. I smacked Gennis in the left temple as hard as I could manage, but he had the kind of reflexes I could only dream about and was able to pull back from most of the blow. He rebounded off the bulkhead, and I hit him again across the back, though I started spinning. I steadied myself with my free hand, and he struggled to do the same. He was groggy, but he sure had experience because his knife was out again already. He swung wildly, and I was able to push him away with the spanner. But he was getting his full senses back fast, which was bad news for me. That was stupid, Ejok. But cunning. My compliments. I take it you actually don't like the idea of a deal. Oh, I could live with one if you'd let me. You can't afford to do that, though. You'd show me some bank statements that would prove you coughed up all the money. I'd give you the recorders. We'd file our carefully written reports and go through our debriefings. Then a week or two after we got back, I'd get a knife in the back, and Sally would still be poor and stranded. Go ahead and tell me I'm wrong. I had kept moving slowly, but I was at the main corridor now, with a lot more room for him to move. Blood streamed off his head and clung to his thick, tangled hair for a bit before detaching itself and floating away in heavy red globules like misshapen berries. His face was blanched and deader than deadpan now. No sense in telling you that. We have trust issues, you and I. Then he slid at me through the air like weightless oil, and I batted at him like a dying willow in a stiff breeze. He didn't go for the kill immediately, so I thought he was wary of the spanner. But I was watching the knife as he moved, 
and I didn't see his free hand until it sort of blurred in front of me, flipping the spanner out of my white-knuckled grip as if we'd rehearsed it. It clattered against a bulkhead and cartwheeled away, and as I watched it go, I felt a cold thing at my throat. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, uh, you got me. <laughs> Sorry about that, but I, I had to try, right? No, you didn't, though I'll admit your reasoning was sound. So it's sooner rather than later for you? Just as well, then. No twitch or change in his expression. No sneer or angry smile. The small, hard thing he held under my left ear became a point of absolute and total concentration, and it went from being simply cold to being hot and edged in a millisecond. And then there was a loud, crackly snap from behind us, and the man before me just dropped back with clenched eyes like a stressed rag doll. He drifted at an angle, but didn't otherwise move a muscle. Further down the companionway, Bayern sidled out from the hatchway to the bridge. He held a small stunner in a classic one-arm-out-supported-by-the-other pose made famous by an age of adventure vids. His face was drawn, and he didn't waver a centimeter in his aim at the man who had called himself Guinness. He moved closer, floating up behind and touching his target gently with one foot, stunner still set to fire. There was no reaction. The knife drifted freely nearby, and he caught it deftly and pocketed it. He then took out some tape cuffs from a leg pouch and cinched the stunned man's hands and feet together. He glanced at me a few times while he worked, but didn't say anything. The silence was deafening, and I was exhausted. So you really do have multiple personalities. You were what? A secret agent? Diegman's Security Corps. We had intelligence that indicated there was a piratical agent aboard this cruise, but we didn't know who. His background checked out just the same as yours and Sally's, so the only thing to do was put someone in undercover. How long did you suspect him? I didn't. I suspected you. I heard raised voices and came to look. And listen. When did you figure him out? When Ponty opened fire, I knew someone must have been talking to them. That could have been me. You'd have had no way to know. <laughs> yeah, well, no offense, but the dumb guy act was pretty convincing. He smiled, but declined to comment on that, and instead asked if I'd swap cabins with Guinness, or whatever his name was, in case he had hidden away any nasty surprises in his room somewhere. That sounded prudent, so I agreed, and I shifted my stuff. Later on, we did a thorough search of my new room for hidden weapons or comm devices and found several of each. At this point, though, I was dead on my feet, so to speak, and figured Dame Minnie could wait a sleep shift or two before throwing any more surprises at me. I looked in on Sally before racking out. Her vitals were fine as she lay strapped to her bunk, sleeping almost serenely. She was unmoved from the last time I'd seen her, except for a glob of spittle that hovered near her slack jaw. I left in a hurry when I realized that the bad guy had been right.
I expected to hear a lot of flack over all the damage to the boat once we started making reports back to Diegman, but we got just the opposite reaction. We began sending reports as soon as we had all the basic systems online. I didn't want to risk draining the battery out by putting AG back on, but Sally did some number crunching and decided that we could run at one-half G and still have a healthy safety margin. She was up and at him again within two shifts, despite her injuries, which is good because I slept for three straight. I let Bayern fill her in on what happened when she got up, at least the broad strokes. I wondered what her reaction to a competent and intelligent Bayern would be. I wondered what mine would be, since we still had weeks ahead of us together. It turned out that he was a pilot in the SEC Corps' investigative branch and had seen his share of smugglers and pirates closer in. This was his first assignment so far out, but not his first undercover operation. He had a dry sense of humor and an appreciation for the delicacy of the relationships involved. In other words, he was a completely different guy, and I liked him. Bayern had shifted Guinness to his new cabin while I was asleep and had used a captain's code I never knew about to lock him in. The two of us delivered his meals and took his dirty linens for the rest of the cruise. He was well-behaved, but sang his job offer a couple more times. Sally never saw or spoke with him again that I know of. She did think of him, though, I'm sure. We all had lots of time to think. That is, until we got closer into Diegman, and the time lag and communications shortened to a reasonable level. Then we had more and more live reports to file. We were actually debriefed a half dozen times before docking, and it was just the beginning. But it wasn't the only one. Bairn had made a point of apologizing to Sally for his asinine behavior on the way out. She didn't believe him at first, and continued to treat him like an annoying bug for a while, but eventually... She saw a different guy in place of her ex-husband's foolish look-alike. By the time we docked, they were inseparable. We got paid our contract fees, plus an extra bonus for cracking the so-called pirate ring. We were actually minor celebrities for a while. You know, the Avengers of Diegman, saviors of the space lanes, blah, blah, blah. They put Guinness in an isolation cell so fast that I'm not sure he ever got a trial. Nobody asked me to testify anyway. They wanted to send the rest of us back out as soon as Dame Minnie got all her repairs completed, along with some much-needed upgrades. But our contracts were for one cruise only, and I'd had enough. So did the others, it seemed, because the owners ended up recruiting a whole bevy of eager beavers from which they could crew Dame Minnie indefinitely. Local talent all, and I guess bona fide patriots. Whatever. It was still a backwater to me, and I wanted a ticket to civilization. It wasn't long at all before shipping and travel got up to speed again, and I got myself a position on a corporate superliner, helped considerably by a frothing reference from Diegman. I called Sally before I left. I figured she might want a job, and I thought I could probably get her something on the same ship. Bayern was there with her when she picked up, though, and he had her laughing about something, so... I just turned it into a goodbye call. Seems he'd already gotten her a really good spot with SecCorp Maintenance, a steady permanent position watching over the contracted civvy schnooks who did all the upkeep on their vessels. They wished me the very best and begged me to come back for a visit someday. I promised that I would, and we all smiled at the lie. The superliner didn't seem to really need me, truth be told. I was given the title of 
third assistant defensive officer, some nonsense like that, and I did little more each work shift than show up and run simulations. I used the gym regularly and lost some weight. I sat and let the days and then the weeks and then the months pass. I don't know why, but this time, the waiting wasn't so bad. So that was Motherload. I hope you had fun listening to it. I really do. As I've mentioned many times, this novella is only part one of a series of upcoming stories starring the character of Ejok, covering his adventures as he drifts around the stars from job to job. If you'd like to hear these tales, please let me know, and let others know too. Twitter, Facebook, Google+, Pinterest, whatever that actually is. That which socializes your network, the exact form, immaterial, and of no regard, would be a morsel, the tiniest crumb fallen from the cornucopian table of thine bounteous condescendence, and yet shall it be an assistance as of golden ambrosia unto mine empty belly. The gratitude of this man in certitude, though barren of charm and clumsy of tongue and pen, shall know unto thee no bounds, and shine evermore as like the eternal stars of heaven. And again, go and grab the ebook if you haven't already. You can get it off my site or amazon.com if you want it for the Kindle, and it is available right now. And book 2 of the Star Drifter series, Street Candles by name, is right around the corner. Well, around the corner and down the road a bit, but it's not far. I'm telling you, next year sometime, guaranteed. Anyway, I have been and continue to be Lost in Bronx, and I thank you for listening. Take care. God's Christ. You have been listening to the Cavalcade Audio Productions presentation of Motherlode. Book one of Star Drifter, written and read by Lost in Bronx. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can find Cavalcade Audio Productions on Google Plus and on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter and Identica as Lost in Bronx. Drop me a line and tell me what you think. And please do check out my site, cavalcadeaudio.com where you can read the complete text version of this story, check out the credits and attributions for the show, sign up for the feed, and stay current with everything that's going on. Motherload is a work of fiction and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Apparent similarities are purely coincidental. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Trunks i released by Royal Bass Records, and is available on SoundCloud.com. The music for Motherload is called Love Me or Not by DubFX and is used under special permission. It can be found at convoyunlimited.bigcartel.com. These artists retain their respective licenses for their content. 
This production is otherwise copyright 2012 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike Unported 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Respect the license, respect the fans, share and share alike. Talk to you soon.